0: This is Leewood Online, a ministry
1: of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com.
0: Good morning. I'm Myrtle Mohart. Today, our scripture reading will be from Matthew four twelve through seventeen, which can be found on page eight hundred nine in the pew Bibles. Matthew 4:12 through 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Nap- Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a great a light was don, was, has dawned. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.
1: Thanks, Let me just say welcome again. Um, And a quick word about baptism. Uh, This week in our newsletter, we'll put some more information about what baptism is. And maybe moms and dads, as you watch that, maybe your kids have been asking about that. Or maybe as an adult, you have some questions about that. So in the newsletter this week, we'll give kind of a guide for moms and dads of what questions would you ask and how would you know when your child was ready. Um, And there'll be some questions that I think as as adults as well, you benefit from. We want to be the kind of church that celebrates those moments. And baptism is a symbol for us of what God has already done inside someone's heart. And so for us to celebrate that with you, maybe you've never been baptized and are a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're wrestling with what faith is to begin with, man, we would love to walk alongside of you. There's lots of different traditions and different backgrounds and lots of different understandings about baptism, and we would love to just have that conversation with you whenever you're ready. So check out the newsletter this week on that end, and then let me just pray for us while we jump into this text. It's good to be with you guys. So Jesus, thank you again for your mercy and grace. Thank you for this summary sermon of the fact that the kingdom of God has come, and thanks that you've made a way for us to enter into your kingdom through repentance, and it's not our act of repentance and the effort that we put into that, it's what you've done to make our forgiveness possible that makes this passage really good news. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would apply that good news to our heart, that you would help us understand this text, and that you would actually let us do what this um, text calls us to, to turn away from the kingdom of this world and turn towards you and, and to welcome what you want to do in our lives. Thanks so you don't need our permission. You are the sovereign ruling reigning king forever and always and in the mysterious way through your grace you've actually invited us to participate in your kingdom. So, so we say thank you for that and, and I just ask that you would help this make sense to our hearts and that we could apply it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Wait, I promise not to make any, like, chief's kingdom jokes as we look at this text. And I'm being flagged down for children. Thank you. Hey, if you're a little one who's going to class, so potty trained through kindergarten, Mr. Stevens back there, you can meet him, and he'll walk you back to the bedroom, and you guys can enjoy the rest of your class. Um, Okay, no kingdom jokes, I was going to say that. Oh, then we're back into this text. Hey, um... This passage falls in context, right? So last week we looked at the temptation passage of Matthew chapter 4, which what we saw on display there was there are only two kingdoms and they are in conflict. Matthew begins at the beginning of his book to tell us that this Messiah is the one who comes in the line of King David. He's from the son of Abraham, that he acts in the line of Moses. He actually traces all the way back to some foreshadowing to Adam. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And we wonder, so what what does that mean? And it means that actually God has declared war on the kingdom of this world as he sends his son Jesus into the world to keep the promise he made all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so when Jesus defeats the evil one on our behalf, as we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter 4, what we see is that God is continuing to advance his kingdom. And he does it through his son's obedience, which will ultimately take him all the way to the cross. And so this is not a war that's like up for grabs. There will be a decisive victory from our God over ruling and reigning over all time as he finally defeats the evil one. But we live in an intermediate time where there is still a raging battle. And so Jesus just kind of exposed that for us in chapter 4. In chapter 5, Jesus will teach us what it looks like to live inside that kingdom. What are the ethics of that kingdom? What, What does it mean to kind of live in the kingdom of God? How does it change our values? If we've been living one way according to the values of this world and the kingdom of this world, what does it look like to turn and repent and trust God and begin to live a different way when it comes to our money and our relationships and what we value and treasure and how we talk and how we judge people and how we engage with each other and how we forgive people. What what does that actually have to do with that everyday moments of our life kind of situation? So that's that's where we'll go in chapter 5. And so this, in context, is super important for us because Jesus is beginning his public ministry and is declaring in a sermon sentence the summary of his message, which is the kingdom of God is here and you must respond to that kingdom. And we kind of live in this kingdom of the world, maybe in ways that are lulling us to sleep. Maybe you don't even notice it. You're kind of born as a citizen into the kingdom of this world, which the scripture would say is the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's your kingdom of self. It's the kingdom of our culture. It's a kingdom that's opposed to the rule and reign of Christ. You just breathe that air. You just inherited it. You didn't choose it. It happened to you. And you have participated in that rebellion against the one true king as a citizen of the kingdom of this world. And the scriptures would say that's a problem. It actually sets us at odds with King Jesus. And Jesus comes into the world to clarify that for us and to actually accomplish a way for us, not just to feel sorry about that, but to actually have the atonement for all of the sins that we've committed in in allegiance to another kingdom so that we can turn and pledge our love to the one true king. That's kind of what's going on here. So to put it in that context means that repentance is not just saying sorry for stuff that we've done. Sin is not like bad stuff that you wish you wouldn't do or things that you're trying to get over and you're, you're making resolutions this year to stop. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is not habits that you have that you wish were different that you're trying to get over so you feel better about yourself. Sin is rebellion against the king. It stands in opposition to the God who made you. It stands in, in opposition to his actual kingdom. And so this passage then invites us to consider what it looks like to turn from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of our God and King. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through the passage, and then I want to ask three questions. What is the kingdom of heaven? How do we enter into it? And then just a comment, like, what difference does that make? What do we do with a call to turn into and trust the kingdom of heaven? So look with me back in verse 12. John uh, is, is, is in prison, we've heard in this passage. Now, we'll read about that in Matthew 14. There's probably a whole year summarized between verses 12 and 13, which is different than verse 1 of chapter 4, where you see that word, then. We looked at last week, so immediately after the baptism of Jesus, he goes into the desert. But here, we see in verse 12, it starts a little different. It says, now, now, when he heard this, that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, Jesus, we think, had ministry publicly for about three years. And Mark and Luke and Matthew don't really tell us much about that. John spends a couple of chapters at the beginning of his gospel giving us some more details about that and what happened there. You see some references in the book of Luke. And in fact, Luke gives us a whole section describing what happened between verses 12 and 13. I tell you that because... Matthew's not just trying to give you a geographical marker to say, hey, this was fulfilled by the prophet Isaiah that Jesus moved from, you know, where he was in Galilee down to Nazareth and to Capernaum. It's more than just that. It's actually setting the stage for us to realize in that movement, God is not just positioning his son geographically. He's declaring something cosmically about light and dark. And so flip with me over to Luke chapter 4, right? If I'm saying it kind of covers a full year in those verses, what we see in Luke chapter 4 gives us a little bit more background. So I'll start in verse 14. It's on page 859, 859 in your pew Bible, Luke chapter 4, right? So the synoptic gospels are historically accurate accounts of Jesus' life. But they're organized and told in ways that tell us theologically something about who God is and what we need to do to trust him. And so each author tells the same story in slightly different ways. And so sometimes it's helpful to kind of compare the way Mark and Matthew and Luke and John tell the story. We just get some more details. And here's one of those situations. So in Luke chapter 4, remember these these towns that he named. Look in verse 14. And Jesus returned. This is right after the temptation. So you see the top of the chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, which we just talked about last week. Verse fourteen, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So that's not just like a day; that's for a little while. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and he read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me," is quoting Isaiah. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him because they know this is a messianic promise. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And then he turns and says, hey, I know what's going through your mind. You're going to start to make some assumptions. And he begins to unravel through the rest of that chapter. Their false assumptions of the kingdom of God came only for the Jews. He's going to give two examples of time in the Old Testament where where God was merciful to non-Jews, which is what this passage says in Matthew chapter 4, right? He goes to the area of the Gentiles, right? He moves into the Galilee of, of the Gentiles, it says in verse 15. So right off the bat, Jesus is declaring this is not a localized citizenship through a bloodline kind of kingdom. This is more than just the children of Abraham who trace their family lineage through Abraham. He's saying this is a cosmic kingdom, one that actually came to declare war against darkness, and it's open to everybody. So right off the bat, he kind of quotes this section to set that up for us, and he moves Jesus geographically to the northern part of the kingdom, which is where you would first encounter God's holy land. In that space, what he's saying real vividly is, this is where it begins in the city of the Gentiles. In that space now, God is declaring the good news. And here's the good news, right? The people who are dwelling in a darkness, I'm back now in Matthew chapter 4. People who are dwelling in a darkness, they've seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death of them, a light has dawned. Which is what he said from that Isaiah scroll. Hey, I came to actually set captives free, to, to liberate, to actually heal, to take what was broken And to fix it, the announcement of the kingdom is announcing that the kingdom came into the darkness to push back that darkness. And in that space, then, we ask, what do we do? How do we respond? From that spot in verse 17 of Matthew 4, he says, Jesus began from that moment on to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so what is this kingdom? quite simply, the kingdom is the rule of God. So there's whole books written about that. There's lots of conversation of is the kingdom of heaven, the same thing as the kingdom of God. I think for our purposes today in 30 minutes, they are so similar. Sometimes the authors are nuancing something a little bit different, but they're basically saying this is the rule of God. This is God ruling and God reigning, and what he wants to say is the kingdom of God is at hand, which means it's here now among you. And you should stop and say, wait a second, I thought God was the creator. I thought God always ruled. I thought God always reigned. What does it mean that Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand? And so we have got to talk about a couple different layers here. For one, surely God has always been ruling and reigning the entire universe, right? Even in John 1, as John begins his gospel, it says the word was with God, the word was God. Everything was created through him and for him, and that light has come into the darkness. So everything exists because of God. So his rule and reign extends over all of creation. Throughout the Psalms, we see that God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So we shouldn't think that there was a time when God's rule and reign were jeopardized or where he he lost the right to rule and now he's fighting to get it back. That's not what's going on. Cosmically, God has always been ruling. But as you read the scriptures all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what you see is God allowed for a rival kingdom to advance in our world alongside of his rule and reign. And you go like, why would he do that? There's tons of mystery. One of them is so that God can show his mercy and forgiving rebellious sinners. But it's super complicated. But what's not complicated is whether or not God actually is ruling and reigning. He is ruling and reigning, and the kingdom of darkness has influence alongside of that kingdom. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's not saying it just started or it began. What he's saying is it's now accessible to you through God's son as he draws near to you to push back this darkness that exists in our world. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. And Jesus is saying, hey, good news for you. Here's the situation. Like I promised back in the Garden of Eden to come and defeat the enemy of God, I've come into the world. What I promised to you to come and make all things right, to finally defeat the evil one, that is happening now in your midst. That's what Jesus is saying. So the kingdom of heaven, then, is the rule and reign of God, and in a broken world, what Jesus is promising is this reign will now right all of the wrongs, because God's kingdom is about justice, so he's going to come and deal with injustice. God's kingdom is about holiness, so he's going to come and deal with wickedness. Jesus is coming to actually fulfill what was promised, Matthew wants you to see. And in so doing that, he comes to deal with the death and the darkness that has shown in our world through sin and brokenness, which happened, remember, sin is not choices that we make or bad habits we have. It's cosmic treason. So back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, what you see is us saying to God, no. We won't let you be our king. We want a, a different king, a kingdom of self. We want to follow some of the rules. We want to actually push against your kingly Rule And there's judgment in that moment, and God declares that death comes as a result. And what you see played out for a millennium in the scriptures is the results of these two kingdoms being at war. But Jesus comes to say, hey, I've come to actually declare a renewal of all things, a, a, a setting of right what has been broken. And as the kingdom of God comes, what you see is what he promised in that Isaiah scroll, to come and make everything new Again, let let me describe it for you. So look with me at the end of this chapter, chapter 4 of Matthew. Go to verse 23. I almost preached this whole section, and I thought, there is a game on. You would not like me to preach this entire chapter. But but look in verse 23. It says this, and he went out throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God is here and what happens when that happens and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so his fame spread throughout all syria and they brought him all that were sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons those having seizures and paralytics and he healed them and great crowds followed him from galilee of the, of the decapolis and through jerusalem and judea and from beyond the jordan So as the kingdom of God advances, he comes to unravel what is the consequences and the effects of sin. Good news to you, God has come into our world to actually fix what is broken. Now here's the great news. We don't have to cover all of it today or unravel all of it today because Matthew will use the word kingdom over 50 times in his gospel. It's a major theme throughout the book of Matthew. You see it throughout the Gospels. It is the the main idea of what Jesus came to do, is to come to establish and to advance the kingdom of God like he promised. And then we see the effects of that kind of played out throughout the rest of of the Gospel. So when Jesus comes and declares this and interacts with people, when he heals, when he teaches, when he touches, he's advancing the kingdom, And so I walked through actually all 50 some of these verses in Matthew. I won't read all of them to you, but let me rattle off a couple of these because I want to paint a portrait for you of what the kingdom of God is. The definition is it's the rule of God, and that feels really nebulous. That feels really far away. So, so what does the rule of God actually look like? Well, just like we just said in Matthew chapter 4, it means the healing of disease and affliction among people. In Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, we'll see that the kingdom of God is the kind of kingdom that moves towards the poor and the persecuted. It's an upside-down kingdom. When you think of kingdom, you think might and chariots and castles and war machines. You think slaying enemies through military power. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is advancing among the poor. It came to walk alongside those who are suffering. And so, kids, I think in your packet you have a, a little sheet to like, draw a picture of the kingdom. And would love to exchange fruit snacks for your picture when you're done. But moms and dads, would you picture in your mind, too, when you think of the kingdom of God, what, what is it? What is Jesus announcing here? Well, in Matthew 5, 19 and 20, he says that it's about holiness, he says. In Matthew 7, he says this is not an imaginary kingdom. It actually begins to change people. It's not just word only. It's not just those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who actually follow after my will that are in the kingdom of God. This is not just ideas we throw around, that it has real teeth and real impact in our life in Matthew 8 we see this Roman centurion this high ranking official in the kingdom of this world bowing the knee to Jesus and Jesus in that moment welcoming the nations to himself right so it's not a geopolitical kingdom it's a broad global kingdom available to all who would believe in Matthew 9 we see this kingdom is about healing and restoration In Matthew 11, we begin to see this kingdom again is upside down, right? It's those who are the least that are seen as the greatest. God is not just exalting the things that we normally exalt, the things that we feel so drawn to. He actually exalts the weak and the lowly and says, those are the ones who are great in my kingdom. He pushes back darkness as evidence that the kingdom of he- is here. So Matthew 12, he says, hey, if I'm casting out demons, then the kingdom of God is among you now. If I have authority to dispel the, de- the evil one, then what's going on in this moment is a decisive victory and advancement of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, we get this parable of the soils. We see there's different responses to the kingdom. In Matthew 13, we're told the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's really small, and then it grows over time. It's like leaven that that is almost unnoticeable, and then it begins to change everything quietly. The kingdom of God is advancing for thousands of years since the time of Jesus, quietly in places where people are desperate to be healed and set free and liberated. Matthew 13 tells us the kingdom of God is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. It is precious and it is most valuable. And when you understand it, you will sell everything you have. You will give everything else away to give sole allegiance to the one true king. Matthew 13 also tells us the kingdom is also about judgment because there is a rival kingdom that has set up treasonous acts against the king. And God, as the just judge, would not be just if he didn't deal with that. So the king actually comes to execute judgment. We see in Matthew 18, again, these greatest become the least when he exalts the humility of children and says, be like this in the kingdom of God. We see that uh, in uh, Matthew 18, the parable of unmerciful servant, uh, that actually the kingdom value of forgiveness is, is meant to be shared Not hoarded. It's meant to be spread among us. It's not a personal, individual kingdom that we hold on to. It's actually meant to be shared, and it expresses the value in our relationships. And Matthew nineteen is implication of the kingdom for divorce and our sexuality. You see, in in moments like in Matthew twenty, where where the last are first, and those who had had, don't have a deserving posture, or they don't they don't merit, they don't earn something. It's actually given to them by grace. We see in Matthew 21, tax collectors and prostitutes, those who know they're needy, are the ones who are entering into the kingdom first. We see that wealth actually sometimes is a barrier to coming into the kingdom, and thinking yourself as a religious elite in Matthew 21 and 22 can, can get you in a situation where you won't accept the kingdom because you don't think you need it. Okay, All of that as a composite sketch for you. What did you hear in that? What stands out to you? What stands out to you is it's different than what we normally value and esteem. This is the lowly being exalted. This is the weak being made strong. This is those who don't deserve actually being shown mercy. It's the opposite of the kingdom of this world. And Jesus came to say, I came to actually bring this kingdom. Here's my summary. This is a liberating kingdom. It sets people free. It's an established kingdom that will not be shaken. It's an upside-down kingdom. There's, there's values that kind of are expressed over power through weakness. It's a personal kingdom. It comes through repentance, which is a relational dynamic. It's a cosmic kingdom. It's God's rule over the whole world. And it's a coming kingdom, Matthew would say, there's still more to come that we still need. So in that composite sketch, what you see is God's kingdom is advancing, and it's actually dealing with all the brokenness that you and I experience. To walk through those passages and summarize all these little snapshots is to locate your story and your need and your rebellion and your longing and your brokenness and your disease and your sickness, hearing that the kingdom of God is available to you. What is the kingdom of God? It's the rule and reign of God. And it does bring about justice, which means Jesus is sounding a warning shot to all the unjust. He's actually declaring war on, on all those who would oppress. Right? So the call to repentance is a call to change. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's beauty in the kingdom of God, but there's also danger in the kingdom of God because this king demands allegiance. And if you continue to rebel against him, you find yourself on the opposite side of his kingdom, actually getting his wrath rather than his mercy as he deals with all the brokenness. So if justice and peace are on the way, then those who have twisted justice and disturbed peace are in trouble, Jesus says. So what's the kingdom of God? It's the rule and reign of God. How do you enter into that kingdom? You may be surprised to hear it's through repentance. So verse 17, from this time forward, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way that you come into this kingdom is not through making promises. It's not through getting better. It's not through trying harder. It's not through your own reform. It's through turning and repenting. And to say that we have to repent means that we're not currently neutral. You're not born into a neutral space. You're actually born, the scriptures say, into rebellion against the king. So let's just go back into where we were a couple weeks ago and we talked about Repentance. We talked about the nature of repentance as this turning from something back towards something else, right? So physically I kind of walk this way. It's like you were born against God, going after the kingdom of this world, and to repent then is to turn and move towards and Repentance has an object. It has it has movement. It's not just in your head saying, I'm sorry. It actually is an allegiance going from one direction back towards this direction, which says that you're not currently just fine on your own. God had to do something to make it possible for you to turn towards Him. In that space, the invitation is to actually trust Jesus and to to see Him begin to heal and restore. But that takes a response from you because all of us have lived our lives after the kingdom values of this world. And here's what's crazy. We have this Amazing capacity to reduce everything down to the size of our own little kingdom, right? And the kingdom of yourself is suffocating and claustrophobic, which is why everybody around you who doesn't bow to you and your kingdom is so threatening. Right? So all the anger, all the bitterness, all the insecurity, all the materialism, all the ways that you, you rank and use people, those are people who are threatening your kingdom and you will use whatever weapon at your disposal to dismiss them, to defend yourself, because there's not room in the kingdom of self for anybody else. Here comes Jesus in this cosmic global kingdom, expanding the kingdom to everybody, but it confronts this claustrophobic kingdom of your own heart, which is where you and I live apart from Jesus, where everything is about us being satisfied and us being taken care of and us getting our way. Those are kingdom allegiances. When when we dismiss somebody as threatening, when we find ourselves insecure, when we stand over somebody in anger, in those moments, we are defending our kingdoms. And Jesus said, we have to repent of that. The kingdom of self has actually set us on a trajectory where we've been going after certain things our whole life, and we must now turn and go back towards Jesus. So, so go back a couple weeks ago when we were in our sermon, right? We talked about kind of a level of repentance, right? So I used the stairs. It was a little bit jangly, but I tried to try to explain like the deeper you go in repentance, not just saying I'm sorry, but actually go down into, hey, there's loves I have behind this action, It wasn't just me using words that were unkind. I was actually defending something that was valuable to me at expense to you. And that's because I actually believe I'm the most important being in the universe. And everybody must bow the knee to me. And then we got to the center spot of repentance saying, at this moment we actually have an opportunity to turn to Jesus and to bow the knee. This is a kingdom allegiance moment. And then we could let him actually change our affections and reorient our loves and then change our behavior. Do you remember that? We're talking about the depth of our repentance, bring about a depth of freedom, because repentance is not about rubbing your face in your shame. It's about liberation and freedom. The kingdom of God is coming, and it's advanced. Jesus says, and what he says is, he came to heal the broken and to set things right, because when you serve this claustrophobic kingdom of yourself, you not only hurt yourself and other people, you actually begin to be diseased. You you begin to be crippled. You begin to be broken. The suffocating kingdom actually crushes you because it can't carry the weight you try to give it for your own salvation. And in that space, you actually need healing and redemption as well. So, So the invitation is not just, hey, I'm sorry. It's to come a little bit deeper into our hearts and a little bit deeper into our hearts so that we actually experience a kind of freedom and healing. So so two realities. I use an illustration of like a trampoline. Do you remember that? A little bit silly. Uh, None of us are trampoliners, I realize. I have a habit of um, illustrations that are not relevant to anybody, but you still kind of understand what they mean. So it's not that we have a trampoline ministry or anything like that, but, but you understand what it means to like bounce deep onto a trampoline. Well, here's the deal. Community actually is that double bounce on that trampoline. Have you ever done a trampoline with a friend? Think back to when you are seven or, or kids back when the weather was warm. And so when you're bouncing with somebody, they can actually hit the trampoline in such a way that it just skyrockets you, right? So community functions like that double bounce. Because here's the deal. In the claustrophobic nature of your own kingdom, you can't see, except for the side effects and the damage done, what actually is happening inside your heart. So community welcomes somebody else Proverbially onto that trampoline of your life to go, hey man, I don't know if you realize it, but you are not just sarcastic, you have a bite. When someone brings a suggestion to you, you immediately get defensive. When actually it comes to issues with sexuality, your eyes are roaming all over the place. I hear you talk about people in ways that dehumanize them. What happens in community, because again, we're not building our identity. God gives us an identity in the gospel. I'm actually welcoming someone's feedback, and I can receive someone's help to say, hey, what's behind that? So I gather with a couple of guys over Zoom every other week, and we're just praying together. We're in the scriptures, reminding each other what's true. And the question is not, did you struggle this week? The question is, where did you struggle this week? Just expecting that the kingdom of self is so deep, I'm always going to be needing healing. I'm always going to need forgiveness. I'm always going to be struggling to actually stop going after the kingdom of self and turn back to the kingdom of God. And my relationships are designed by God in the church to be a gift to me to help me see when my kingdom of self is in confrontation with the kingdom of God. And one of the hot spots is when my kingdom of self interacts with your kingdom of self and we butt heads. In that moment, we shouldn't just think who's right and who's wrong. We should stop and go, oh, there's a cosmic battle going on right now in this moment over kingdoms. Because Jesus will describe in the Sermon on the Mount the ethics of the kingdom of God because you're not protecting your own kingdom, now you can be generous now you can forgive, now you can be humble, now you can be gracious, now you can serve and sacrifice, now you can do things and not be seen, now you can actually extend forgiveness to people that have hurt you. That's what we're going to walk through in the kingdom ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. And I need community to help me with that, because the second part is, the kingdom of self is so deep, I've practiced it for so long, I'm the rest of my life going to be confronted with places where I still need to repent. So this is not just repent for salvation. This is a habit a Christian has because the deeper we go, the more we realize, oh, they're still tangled up. That kingdom of self is still wrapped around my attitudes and behaviors and loves and passions. And I get to, again, remember, not feel shame, but liberated. Repentance is not about you feeling shame. It's about you being free. Jesus came to say, I came to set captives free. That's why you repent is towards freedom not to get your act together so you stop embarrassing yourself or embarrassing your family or embarrassing God. It's so that you could be free from this claustrophobic kingdom of self that's actually multiplied into our world, that, that is led by an evil one that tempts us. We talked about last week. And so because I've lived in that world for so long, I should expect the rest of my days to need to be liberated. And the good news is the kingdom of God is so Um, far-reaching. There's no corners of my heart that God wants to leave untouched, and I get to be in relationship with you to remind me of that, to welcome me to see myself, and we get to be a people who are constantly experiencing liberation and freedom. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it's growing like a, a leaven. It's spreading like leaven. It's quietly moving through my life and through our community as we pursue who God is and what He's like. So, so what is the kingdom of God? It's the rule of God. How do we enter into this kingdom? We enter into it through repentance. Because we realize we have had a battle going on in our hearts even before we knew it. This is Richard Lovelace in his book, kind of on, on renewal. He says this, Jesus' marching orders are, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. That's Matthew six thirty three. And yet for believers, every normal activity is a part of kingdom warfare. For the kingdom of God is nothing other than the proper ordering of all of our activities within the framework of obedient love of God and compassionate love of neighbor. The most crucial battle for the kingdom is won every time a human being repents, believes, and submits to the lordship of the Messiah, becoming a new center for the reordering of life on earth as it is in heaven repentance, this having a new mind about God and ourselves and others, is the most dynamic inrush of the kingdom within ordinary history. When we repent, we enter into that kingdom, and the kingdom enters history in a little larger measure through us. This is the point of the parables of the kingdom, that where little leaven grows and mustard seed takes root and becomes this large tree. The invitation is to constantly be realigning ourselves with the kingdom. Of God. Okay, so if repentance is the entrance, let's then ask, how do we apply this? Remember, repentance is, has an object right? it's turning from something to something else. So I, I don't want to flatten this out. There are three kinds of people in the room watching online. There's people who don't know Jesus. You have not yet bowed your knee to King Jesus. You are living firmly with your own allegiance to self and to this world. Your invitation is to trust Christ for the first time and to repent of your sins and turn towards him. There are others of you in the room, you are a follower of Jesus, but, but you have lived so confused and synchronistic for so long that you've actually adopted in your heart both kingdom values. And in a given day or given moment, you're giving yourself over to allegiance to both kingdoms. You actually have lots of kingdoms, kingdom of self, kingdom of the flesh, kingdom of the world, kingdom of the devil. It's almost like a spiritual NASCAR. You have all these sponsors kind of stuck to the car of your life, and you're giving yourselves to lots of things for support and value and significance. And so for you, repentance looks like turning away from those things, right? Letting actually the synchronism get unraveled for you. So you're not just adding Jesus to what you already want, thinking he's the best way to get that, right? So missionaries will go overseas and will walk in other cultures and they'll come back and say, oh, man, sometimes we have to be careful because we'll tell people about King Jesus and they'll believe. And they'll just add Jesus to what they're already doing, believing that a little bit of Jesus makes everything better, not realizing that there's only two kingdoms, And allegiance to one means rebellion to the other. But we have this very confusing space where because God is not immediately wrathful every time we blow it, you often think that you can live in both kingdoms. So there are Christians in the room who synchronistically have welcomed the values of both kingdom and they're tangled up in your hearts. Repentance for you looks like asking the Spirit of God to explore your heart. To open you up to where you've actually felt allegiance both to God and to the world in that space. Maybe you think you're holding it together. Maybe it's been exposed already. It's not working. But you keep trying in ways that actually need to be healed and redeemed. And I would offer to you where you feel friction relationally, that's where the kingdom of self is coming into conflict. Where you feel tormented. Where you feel shame. That's where the kingdoms are coming into conflict. Where you feel anxiety and anger. That's where the kingdoms are coming into conflict. So you can trace back those fruits of the flesh of slander and wrath and malice and anger as evidence for where's the flesh still growing in your heart. So a Christian who's let yourself kind of stand in both places, or tried to at least, and so so doing like you've lost your joy, you're not sure where God is, you're really frustrated, you carry a weight of shame, repentance for you is unraveling that, asking God to help you with that. And there's a third person in the room it's a Christian who's following after God and you are exhausted you read these passages and you believe the good news and you've given your heart over to Jesus and you're far from perfect but you really do repent regularly you really are following after God and you've in your faithfulness now found yourself in a space where you are exhausted and tired I think the application for you is this idea that the kingdom of God for the fatigued is still good news It just spreads like leaven and mustard seeds. So don't don't give up. Those of you who expected an immediate change when you trusted Jesus that everything would get better, hear the good news that God in His mercy is playing the long game in your life and in the life of those around you. Because if He brought renewal and restoration of all things in a moment, anyone on the other side of faith with Him goes straight to hell. So the Bible says that God is merciful in allowing things to keep playing out to give people time to repent. And so what you are fatigued by is the long love of God, letting the kingdom of God grow like leaven in your relationships and in your own heart. And what you need to hear this morning is keep repenting and turning to Him, and don't give up and be fatigued. It's not that He's let you down. It's not that it's not working. It's not that the kingdom of of this world really is better. It's that God is slow and patient, and you need to be renewed and restored. Okay, I didn't want to flatten application, right? So there's unbelievers. Repentance is different than believers that have given themselves over to kind of trying to live in both worlds. So your repentance is different. And, and the other people to respond to the kingdom. And it's one of fatigue for you. Where you need to keep turning back to Jesus. And trust his long play with the leaven of your life. Because like, COVID has been terrible. Talked about last week about temptation comes when we're hungry. Can we just acknowledge like what's happened in 2020 is an increase of all of our relational hunger, all of our social hunger, all of our physical hunger, all of our emotional hunger. Like we are so hungry and you are tired in that space. Hear the good news that the kingdom of God is near. Christ is working out his kingdom plan in you and through you. And don't give up the scriptures say. But here's what all three of those categories have in common. There's just one king. But the application of a text like this, it says repent because the kingdom of heaven is here, is to turn to King Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, submit to him. If you've blurred your life with other kingdoms, submit to him. If you're fatigued and tired, submit to Submit to him. He loves you. He died on the cross to make a way for you to be forgiven and free so that you could be healed and forgiven and reconciled. Turn to King Jesus is the beginning place for all of us in the room. I don't know where you find yourself, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, but good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ brought it near to us to make it accessible for us so that we didn't just experience his judgment and the way you encounter the kingdom of god is through repentance so, so our tradition is to kind of close this moment to move towards application through communion which is a kingdom reminding meal jesus will say later on in the book of matthew 26 when those of the disciples say i won't eat this again until we eat it fully together in the kingdom And he gives it to us in this little bitty cup, right? This cup of juice and this little piece of bread that we symbolize in this little chalice. He gives it to us to remember that he came and that he's coming again. So so we take this kingdom meal as a declaration of our hope and our faith that the king has come. And we're asking that his will would be done in our life on earth as it is in heaven. I want to just give you some space this morning to pray, and I know your mind is in the afternoon already. I know you've got a lot of things on your heart. Would you just hold on for a couple more minutes? Let the kingdom of God kind of speak into your space through the Son, Jesus, and we'll take communion together. Roxanne will play quietly for us just to give us some room. If you didn't know we're taking communion, you're a follower of Jesus. There's some cups here at the front, also some in the back of the room. You've got time to go grab that and come back. You've got a little spot here with a little wafer for representing the, the body of Jesus and then a little space we pull back to represent the blood of Christ. And what you're doing when you take communion is declaring your confidence that one day, one day there'll be another meal where we'll we gather on the table with King Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb where he finishes what he started in the unraveling of all of our brokenness. And in a deposit way, in a way that looks forward and says, I'm holding on to that, you're reenacting what Christ came to do, the centerpiece of his death and burial and resurrection, which makes it possible for all these things to be true. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just sit and pray. Communion is for those who trust Christ. You can just sit and pray and ask him to speak to you. And if you want to talk about that, man, I'll be at the front. would love to navigate that with you and talk about what it means to trust Christ. So as Roxanne plays, would you just bow your head? Let me pray for you. invite you to take communion. And then when it feels like we're done, Jason will come and he'll lead us in our last song. Jesus, thank you that you came. And thanks that you spoke into the darkness. Thanks that you made a way for us to be forgiven and free. Thanks that you came to push back the kingdom of this world. Would you give patience to my friends that are fatigued? Would you give grace to those who have blended the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of heaven in ways that actually are really confusing and they're really hurting? So would you bring repentance in this moment right now where they would lay down those things of the world, this claustrophobic kingdom of self? Would you call them to lay that down? And for those of you that don't yet know you, would you call them to yourself so they could hear you, invite them to repent and turn away from the things of the world and, and to you? Holy Spirit, come and minister. On us and help us we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our friends, take your time when you're ready. Take communion. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.